Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast. I'm Ben Wilson, and you're listening to Why They Win, a show dedicated to exploring what makes the world's most successful people tick, and more importantly, what you and I can learn from them to improve our own lives. My guest today is political legend Alistair Campbell. As Tony Blair's Director of Communications, he was responsible for keeping the 24-hour media off his boss's back. It was a role he famously excelled at, but it prompted his rivals to compare him to Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's poisonous head of propaganda, and sometimes to even Hitler himself. Tony Blair, though, begs to differ. There are two Alistair Campbells, he says. The Alistair Campbell I know and the one that the media likes to portray. Alistair is bold. He has courage. He's indispensable. A bad day at work for him is still better than most people's best. So it's fitting that someone who knows so much about the process of winning has now written a book about it, blending his experiences with many of the elite performers he interviewed while writing it. His book Winners and How They Succeed comes highly recommended. If you want to know how Bill Clinton... Floyd Mayweather, Alex Ferguson, Steve Jobs, Maradona and Jose Mourinho got to where they are, and the mind tricks and habits that got them there, this is the book for you. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoy the show. You mentioned Maradona in the book. Uh, I mentioned Maradona every day. Why every day? It's just one of my things, one of my things. I played football in this charity match when I was 49, I'm now 58. So it's nine years ago now. And actually that shirt on the wall there is, is uh, from the game with all the signatures of all the players on it. Very cool. And there, that boot there is, those boots there signed by Pele and Maradona. Well, I was wondering what those boots, I thought yeah. maybe they're your sons. No, no, they're mine. Pele and Maradona. Pele and Maradona, yeah. And uh, no, the, the thing, in the context of the book, Maradona's in there, partly because I do have this thing about, I, I, I talk about it every day. Um, but actually he's the one who turned me on to the whole art of visualisation because I did this warm-up with him uh, on the morning of the match, just me and him at Old Trafford. It was in the best experience of my on life. On the pitch? On the pitch. What? Just knocking a ball about and wandering around, talking to each other in me in English, him in Spanish, and a bit of French. And, uh, and he then did this weird thing where we, we were practically kicking a ball about, and then he was hitting it against the bar, and he was, he was just, oh, just oh, laughing. Magical. But then he did this thing where he, he scored a goal, in quotes, and then he ran around the pitch in celebration banging his chest, shouting out his children's name, shouting to God, kissing his tattoo of Castro, I mean, all this sort of crazy <laughs> stuff. And afterwards, I said to him, what was that about? And he says, visualise the victory. Really? Visualisation. It was like, it was, it, was, it was giving yourself the sense of what it could be. Uh, and that's just one little tool that he used and still uses when he's even in a charity match. That's what I was going to say, even just for a kick around. He was the only one who went up on the morning of the game and said he wanted to take in the stadium. Really? Yeah. Because he loved it? Because he just he said he hadn't played for a few days, he hadn't kicked a ball, he, could, he hadn't been to Old Trafford for years, he just wanted to get a sense of it. 
and, and, we, and he wanted to see the dressing rooms. We went to the dressing rooms, we just sat and talked and looked and he was kind of just, he was just getting in the zone. And I'll tell you the other thing that was extraordinary. I, I got this, this friend of mine called Pete Boyle, who he writes a lot of the songs for Manchester United fans. He's a great wordsmith. And, and, and I got him to come and, and, he, and he's got this thing about, you know, Man United is bigger than England. So he was, I was, we were on the rest of the world team, right? So he was supporting the rest of the world. And he came down and spent a bit of time at the hotel. And he wrote these songs for all the players. And on the bus, going to the match, I, I, I told all the other players that this song for Maradona. I can't remember it now. It was Diego, oh, Diego. And anyway, so we, all the players on the bus, including people like Desai and Zola and Mateus oh. and Ginola and Schmeichel. Oh, you must have loved it. Amazing. So we've got the whole bus singing this song to Diego Maradona. And he started, to Diego Maradona? To Diego Maradona. And his, his eyes were welling up. Wow. He was loving it. Wow. And I thought, this is just a guy who just loves this stuff, what he does. And you saw, I, mean, I went to the Argentina-Australia game at the World Cup, and at rugby, every time the camera went to him, the crowd just went wild. He's just got a passion. And I think it's like, a, he is one of the few people, I mean, is there, anyone in the, is there anybody in the world who doesn't know who Maradona is? Yeah. Hardly anybody. I wouldn't have thought. But visualisation and getting a tear in his eye, that, that doesn't speak about, speak of a man who's arrogant. I don't, I'm sure he is arrogant. I mean, honestly, with that game, my, you know, my kids are pretty, they've seen a lot of famous people, politicians and what have you. He was just nice. He was just great. Really? I mean, look, he's obviously, he's, he's a, and I think being at that level is, I think it's difficult. But, and he played 90 minutes and he was brilliant. Really? How are you? I was crap. Didn't you say your son mocked you as he came off? Oh, no, he just, as I came off, he said, Dad, I'm really sorry, but you were completely out of your depth there. Well, yeah, all right. I said, yeah, well, I was, <laughs> play, I was on a pitch with Schmeichel, Maradona, Zola, Dunga. Uh, we were up against... I'll tell you one of the most extraordinary moments of my life was at Old Trafford. <laughs> I've got Maradona and Mateus just inside me, and Paul Gascoigne is running at me. Oh. Uh, and Gascoigne was brilliant, by the way. In what way? Oh. Just, I mean, he, he, they're all retired players, this guy. When he ran at you, it was just a thing of beauty. What do you mean? It was just extraordinary to watch him run at you with a football. In what way? The skill, the way he was moving. Well, the little feet, movements. And... Just everything. Oh. <laughs> and I was thinking, <laughs> I just knew he was going to run by me, and he did. It was like, what, no, it wasn't. It's fine. It's fine. Run by me. I just watch it. It wasn't, it wasn't great. At one point, you know, my, my, my phone ringtone was... Clive Tilsley, ITV commentator, going Maradona, Mateus to Maradona to Campbell <laughs> back to Maradona. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. But I think what I've done in the book is try to talk to people about how they've done it, and then say, well, actually, are there any lessons in this for us, for everybody? So, for example, you know, back to sport, Wazim Akram, Pakistani fast bowler. One of my favourite quotes in the whole book, I asked everybody what took them from kind of that level to mega. And he said it was knowing the difference between wanting to win and will to win. Right? He said everybody wants to win. Will to win is the thing that makes you do the things that you need to do. Yeah, but how do we get that will to win? Well, you may not. You may not. That is why some people have it and some people don't. But I think if you at least identify it. So, for example... You know, Gary Neville, 
Look, he, he, hilariously, you know, he, he once said that, you know, I'm not, I wasn't even the best footballer in my house, <laughs> let alone in the country. So he knew to be good, to get to a level where he could make a great living, to be successful, to play for England, now to be a coach and a commentator and all that stuff, he had to make sacrifices. So will to win for him was going to his friends and saying, I'm really sorry, I'm not coming out with you anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to stay out late on a Friday night. I'm not going to do things that are going to get in the way of me making the most of what I've got. So that's will to win. But how do you get the strength of character? I mean, Especially these young people, you know, young kids, uh, Jensen Button, um, Lewis Hamilton, uh, the Williams sisters. You know, how do they go from these children that, that maintain that sense of purposeful practice every day, the three hours, the 10,000 hours? I think, you... it, I think it's something that will be in them but, it's, but that's not enough. There will, be, there will be something or someone along the way that develops them. So the Williams sisters, I mean, it's obvious, it's their dad. Uh, but, you know, they then still had to have it within them to want to do that. So it wasn't fear? Because, like, Michael I Jackson, think... his dad, his dad, like, drilled them, drilled them. But Michael Jackson, you know, was sort of unbelievable. Unbelievable, isn't it? You know, do you, is it important to just jump on your kids early if you want them to be? I think everybody's different. You see, I, I, I think that... Some children, it's interesting, you talk to, you use the word fear. I think fear is an extraordinary driver of success. I think fear of failure, it's interesting how many of the people in the book, they talk much more about their fear of fear, failure than any joy in winning. Dave Brailsford, for example, he said that, you know, he went, when he, when he announced publicly that he was going to put together a team to win the Tour de France and do it clean within five years. He went home that night and he said to his missus, I can't believe I've done that. And, he th and he, she said, what? He said, well, I've said we're going to win the Tour de France in five years. Said, oh, you better get on and do it then, haven't you? And he, he was like, you know, fuck, what have I done? Yeah. But what he was doing, because he knows his own mind, and maybe it was partly at a subconscious level almost, it was like the only way I can make myself do this is to have it out there as a public challenge to myself. I'm going to do it. He, he announced it. He announced it. Yeah. No, he thought about it. He yeah. thought about it a lot. But it was, he hadn't got all the bits in place. He didn't have a team. Wow. He didn't have all the sponsors. He didn't have the money. He didn't, he didn't know which riders he was going to get. But he had an approach. And then he went out and he, and he did it. And the fear was the big driver. I'm not going to fail. And I, I think that's very, very powerful. I think some people, however, fear isn't a good thing. Yeah. I talked to Mourinho about, you know, the players. Okay, at the moment he's going through a really bad patch, but he's, you know, he's still a winner. He's won mm. at the top level in four countries, and he'll probably win again. Yeah. I think Chelsea it may have burnt itself out, I don't know. But I, my prediction is he'll win the Champions League again, probably with another club, because that is now going to drive him like anything. But the point is, I said to him, what sort of relationship do you want with the players? Do you want them to like you, respect you, or fear you? He said, question. well, he said, fear is not good. Sometimes you've got to scare people, but he said, fear is not a good emotion. Like, and I could tell by the look of his face, he couldn't give a damn <laughs> whether they liked him or not. He said, what I want is that every time that they go into work and they see me at the training ground, they think nobody can do the job better than he's doing it. Now, oh. that may be what's going wrong at the moment. I don't right. know. But that's what he's always had. And you, you hear, it's not just the players who are still there where clearly they have to say they like him in a way, but it's the ones that have worked for him in the past. Now, some of them clearly hate him. 
Really? Well, you know, Casillas, the Real Madrid goalkeeper, I mean, there's no love lost there. Yeah. But others, they love him. He was able to get the best out of them. I even look at my own team, Burnley, you know, Sean Dyche, our manager, if you look at our players on paper, and my son works for West Ham now, and he works in data, and you look at our players on paper, they're not a top of the championship, let alone premiership team, yet he's got them playing like one. Yeah. Now, what's that about? You talk to them, then you talk to the players, and they love him. They think he's great. They think the way they play, the way they train, the, the, the spirit, all these things that you think are cliches when you hear them talking about them on the telly. When they're real, it's really powerful. You had a bit of a ding-dong, sort of a ding-dong with Mourinho, because the theory of your book, um, or a through-line, is uh, OST, yeah. Objective Strategy Tactics. Um, he's saying there is no tactics, it's objective or strategy, you said in the book. Well, no, he's, it, it was an interesting... Um, Funny enough, I bumped into, shall we say, one of his greatest rivals. Who's on your phone? Uh, Alex Ferguson? No, it's another one. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say who he is, but he's French. Ha, of course. <laughs> anyway, I bumped into him a lot long ago. And I, was, I was saying this thing about, you know, Mourinho. Because, I mean, for your listener, right, OST is basically saying any, anything you're involved in, set the objective, whether that's win an election or modernise welfare or get a new deal for Britain in Europe or whatever it might be, set the objective and then have the strategy. And the strategy is the hard bit. That's why Cameron is struggling so much at the moment on Europe. Strategy is the hard bit. And then tactics, only go tactical when you've got the objective and the strategy worked out. What is the tactics? That's a dirty little bit, like kind of like the minutiae how... It's the tools. The tools. It's the, it's the things that... So objective would be, say, in new labour, objective, want to win the election. Yeah. Strategy, new labour, modernisation. Tactics, anything that goes below that. What Mourinho was saying, that in football, in his world, he said, there's no difference. Objective, win. Might be win a title. But to win the title, you have to win the matches. So he said for every match that he plays, he builds a tactical model. Right. That is his strategy. Okay? Really? The tactical for model. Every single one, yeah? Every game. When I, when I interviewed him last time, I interviewed him for the book, and then I interviewed him for GQ, and it was in the pre-season. And he said he and his assistant were sitting down. <laughs> they must be regretting it at the moment, given the way the season's gone. They were spending like three, four, five hours, they got the fixture list and they were building the tactical model for each game for the first part of the season. So I said, what's a tactical model? He said, well, a tactical model would be, for example, there's a corner, your goalkeeper catches the ball, okay? I want to know, before it's even happened, what my players are going to do. Does he throw the ball right or left? Does he roll it into midfield? Does he kick it long? That's a tactic. And I want them to know what I want them to do. Then, for example, let's say the ball, the, 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 let's say they're playing, I don't know, Liverpool. Liverpool are playing a particular way. When they have the ball and they're coming at you and Matic moves that way, which way does Fabregas go? I want that to be drilled into them. That's a tactical model. He says strategy is what you do when the tactical model isn't working. It's a totally different way of thinking about it. From the ground, from the bottom up. Well, it's almost like, I guess it's more the way that sometimes people talk about strategy in war, I guess, that, you know, you have a, that famous 
you know, strategies sort of disappears the first time you actually get into battle. Yeah, the Mike Tyson quote, punch in the face. Yeah, Game plan so, so I think that maybe it's that. I st anyway, this coach who shall be nameless, who's a rival of Mourinho's <laughs> and who's, uh, who speaks in a very distinctive French accent, <laughs> um, he was much more of my view of what tactics and strategy are and the, and the interrelation between the two. And I certainly think in politics... The reason why so many political projects aren't as robust as they should be is because the pressures are to be so tactical. You know, the news media, the social media, the the is that is that noise the problem? Uh, the, the the social media relentless twenty four seven pressure. So it's forcing people to be more tactical. But I pick out in the book I pick out Angela Merkel as I think the most impressive world leader at the moment. And I think in part it's because she resists all those pressures. How? I mean, this is the thing. You talk about Mourinho, you talk about Wenger. You talk about I never Sol mentioned Arsene Wenger. No, no, you alluded to someone. Right? But um, I don't understand how... And, and Merkel just, you know, probably she seems so chilled out, or of course she's not, but how do you deal with that pressure? I mean, you mentioned some French bloke who said to you, I think... Uh, you were at a charity do maybe and he was saying about the negativity of the media um, you know how does someone succeed that pressure well it's interesting I, don't, I, I mean Arsene Wenger as far as I know doesn't read the media really and I think that's I think I think you should know what the media is saying you should know what the trends are you should know roughly what's going on but how can you track it in the modern age there's a wonderful quote in the book from Wenger which actually wasn't it wasn't from me, it was from a book called The Manager, which was written by a guy called Mike Carson, which was commissioned by the LMA, the League Managers Association. Yeah. It's just interviews with managers. It's Great. a brilliant read. Great. And Wenger has this wonderful quote, which I think is so insightful. He says, we've gone from a vertical world to a horizontal world. In the vertical world, leaders could make decisions and then you implemented the decision. In the horizontal world, you're bombarded left, right, and centre. Exactly. I mean, these Premier League games now, or the Champions League, there are millions of tweets. Yeah. Millions. But of this is what I mean. I don't understand people don't in, in that. The only spotlight. way to deal with it is ignore it. Right. You can't let it dictate you. If you do, you're finished. But I mean, how have you how have you built that kind of resilience? How does anyone? I think. Well, it's interesting. Before you arrived, I was I was upstairs. I'm I'm doing a thing at a university next week, and I'm writing a speech about. It's an odd way to put it, but the kind of the benefits, the benefit side of mental illness. Okay, so the benefit when you say to me, how have, how have I built resilience? I built resilience in large part, I think, through having come through a nervous breakdown. That really sorted myself out. Now a lot of people don't. A lot of people go under, but I feel that is where my resilience comes from. That may be a kind of post facto rationalisation. It's right. me saying, I want to get some good out of that. Therefore, I'm going to say my resilience comes from the fact no, that... No, it's a very interesting point. I mean, uh, and I, firstly... I, I believe it, by the way. I do believe it. I don't know, but that's what I believe. Well, when you say it in, in, the, in Winners, or, or I think it was one of the other books, The Happy Depressive, you know, it was amazing, firstly, that you were so open about it. But secondly, and this may be crude, but my view of it was like you just almost set a new baseline. Yeah. It's like, I can't ever be that bad. Well, that is exactly right. I mean, I, I, I still get depressed. Uh, and I still get anxious, and I sometimes still get very, very stressed, and I think, oh, God, it's happening again. And what I do, I mean, I'm lucky. I've got a really, like, you know, we're in our kitchen. I'm, I've got a nice house. I've got a fantastic family. I've got a small number of really good friends. I've got a lot of interests. I don't, I, I do stuff to make money and stuff not to make money, and I've got my life. It's okay. 
But when it gets bad, I mean, what I do now is I literally will go and find a quiet place. It might be that sofa. It might be my office upstairs. I might go for a walk. Mm. And I'll just say to myself, right, when you had your breakdown, that was nine out of ten bad. Yeah, you described it as, what you just described as rough. Yeah. So then I'll say to myself, how bad is this? Mm. And it's never more than four or five. Really? Now, I still might feel bad. Yeah. And I might be... You know, I might even be having kind of suicidal thoughts or whatever, but it's never as bad as that. So you're absolutely right to call it a baseline. I, 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 I call it a yardstick. And I do the same then with things like crisis. I mean, I write, I write in the book about crisis management, and mm. most things aren't crises. Mm. Yeah. And there's this, this, guy, this guy came to see me recently, a business guy. I mean, you know, you may have heard him. He's reasonably well known. Not mega. He's not Richard Branson level. But he's reasonably well known. He came to see me and said, oh, God, things are just terrible. I've got an absolute crisis on my hands. And I said, well, describe it. He described it. I thought, well, this doesn't sound like a crisis. Then I said, you know, has there been much coverage? Because I haven't heard about this. He said, oh, yeah. And he pulls out these cuttings. And it's like page 7, page 12. But that's a crisis to to real people. Yeah, but it's not a crisis. What is a crisis? A crisis is something that threatens to overwhelm you. you Actually, you've mentioned it. So I said to this guy, I said, okay, Obviously, this is really worrying you, really upsetting you. And I gave him a ba- baseline. I said, how many marks out of 10 then for how bad this feels? He said, oh, it's nine, probably eight and a half, nine. I said, okay. So when Bill Clinton was going through the whole Lewinsky thing. Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Yeah. Right, how bad do you think that was? Yeah. He was, mm, mm, I guess, no, no, nine and a half, you know? Yeah, that's bad. I said, well, yeah, maybe nine and a half, which puts you about three. Yep, if that. If that, I mean, I so, it was, but so let's get perspective. Yeah. And I think the first thing that happens is that people lose perspective. Now, I sometimes lose perspective. We all do it. And, you know, I think look, depression in a way is uh, you lose perspective. You start to think that everything is terrible, but it's not. You can't change it. It's just what it is. It's something comes into your head and sort of takes you over. But... Giving yourself these comparisons is not a bad way to deal with it. You mentioned Bill Clinton uh, in terms of strategy and success. I mean, you've mentioned that what was amazing about Clinton was that he didn't just get the big picture, he got the detail. Yeah. Um, Can you just talk a bit about that? How is that a strength? I mean, um, sometimes the the sense is, well, if you like, oh, F it, I'll just crack on with it. Sometimes Mm. that's a real strength. But you're saying he managed both. Is Is that the key, that he's so good on detail? Well, he's an interesting example. I mean, he's obviously a very, very special sort of politician. He's a great communicator. But I think that both with with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, I think sometimes that because they're so good at communication, people think that's what they are. Mm. But actually, you couldn't do something like the Northern Ireland peace process if you weren't absolutely focused on detail. And likewise with Clinton, it's back to the point I made about Brailsford and, uh, and Woodward. I mean, being a... A sports leader is different to being a political leader, but Clinton had an utter fascination with the process of politics and with the process of people's lives. He could, he could bore for the world on some sort of job scheme that he'd seen in Detroit, and he would give you every little... And then I met this guy, and he said this, and he did this, and did that. But what he did when he got into a public platform, he could relate that. Mm. He could distill it and relate it to... And that, in a way, is that's what I try to do in political and strategic communication. It, there's no point, you know, you have to try and engage people. And 
What Clinton, I think, was... I mean, it used to upset Tony that I say Clinton was the greatest communicator I ever saw because, you know, Tony was pretty good. But <laughs> Clinton could relate it to whoever he was talking to, you know? And big, he could marry the big mm, themes with mm. the little details. And ultimately, that's what political communication is about. You know, you've mentioned um, in your books that you, at various stages you had to hype up Tony Blair before a big speech. Or, um, I mean, is there a sense that you were you know, Tony Blair's brails fitting away, you know, you were you're pushing in certain directions, looking at the detail. I mean, how did that well, work, I, that relationship? Because, I mean, three general elections, whenever someone threw mucky, you must thought, well, look, you do that. You did win three elections. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah, no, a massive but, but, feat. But, but um, no, listen, Tony was, Tony was an exceptional person to work with. Um, but I think, yeah, there was, a, there was a real understanding of teamship. Um... And I think, I do think my obsession with sport was of a benefit. It's interesting, Jonathan Powell, who's Tony's chief of staff, he used to think, oh, God, are you two talking about football again? Are you two talking about, you know? But actually, I can learn so much from watching the way these sports guys operate. And I think that sense of, you know, you talk about, there's a bit in the book where I talk about Gary Lineker taking penalties. Yeah. And Lineker says it, you know, it really annoys him when commentaries say game goes to penalties and now it's a lottery. So it's not a lottery, it's an incredible test mm. of your skill under pressure. Mm. And that ultimately is what high-level elite performance is about. So certainly when it came to a big speech, conference, party conference speech, or a big foreign policy speech, or something that you knew mattered, I definitely saw part of my job. It wasn't just about trying to help with the drafting and the writing and the argument and the crafting and the shaping and the briefing and all that. It was also getting helping to get him absolutely in the right shape sometimes that would mean saying you know tony for fuck's sake it's two in the morning you've you got to sleep really you know other times it would be saying listen we're not nervous enough here really we're not nervous enough this is we've got to get this psychologically we're not in the right place you've got to be nervous sometimes if you're a if you're operating at the level that a prime minister or a president is operating at where you know if they're good at what they do they can go into most places they can pick up a vibe they can mm. they can and if they have to just stand there and talk for 10 minutes they can do it right okay it's not difficult there's a danger with that that you then think actually mm. well when i'm doing a big speech that's all i need to do and that might not be good enough and it often wouldn't be good enough so actually getting yourself in the right frame of mind is, is fundamental and I can remember two or three occasions where I can remember one there's one popped into my mind now I think it was in Blackpool at a party conference where we had been sleep deprived uh, and we were feeling very very stressed and then I can remember backstage they were playing a film and we were backstage and it was me and Tony and uh, a woman called Carol Linthforth who was kind of you know part of the events team and I can remember just seeing Tony almost move to a different space really? in his mind. I could see him. He was, he was nodding to himself and he was, he was sort of just pacing up and down. And I actually, I'd been quite nervous about the thing. And I just thought, we're sorted. We're absolutely sorted. I can see this is going to be really good. He's in the right place. He's totally in the right place. Uh, and then you're just worried about the, you know, stuff that you can't control. Will the auto prompt go down yeah. will somebody heckle you know but 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 when you're in that positive mindset you know that 
it doesn't matter if it goes a bit something goes wrong because he'll be able to he'll be able to go right and other times um famously when he got slow hand clapped by the women's institute <laughs> i mean that That's was bad that was bad and that was a classic because actually we weren't in the right place we'd had a we'd had an i'd never known a speech that we within the office that we argued so much about. Really? Because several of us thought this is just not the place to make the speech that he wanted to make at that time. It was a question of the venue, the event being wrong. And it became one of those arguments where we just ever just dug their heels in and eventually he was like, you know, sod it, this is what I'm doing. And of course, <laughs> I'll never forget it. I was actually, I didn't go with him. Uh, whether that was because we'd had the argument, I can't remember. But And I was in my office, I had a meeting with John Prescott and the telly was on and I had the sound down and I'm looking at the telly and I think, something's going on here. And I look, John Prescott turns around and he says, oh my God, he's got his Bambi look on. <laughs> <laughs> we turn the volume up and there's this bloody slow hand clapping going on. I've spent a long time trying to work very hard on the National Health Service. <laughs> Thank you very much. You, all, you know, you mentioned um, your depression, but also uh, in the book, what comes through is a sense that you felt almost defeated after the general elections, after you'd won them. Mm. Um, there was a sense that you weren't satisfied. Or, no, or, I know. I don't know what that's about, really. But it's really interesting because you see it with a lot of sports, sportsmen at elite level, and I just think how important, actually, is that experience of never being satisfied? I think it probably is. I mean, if you talk to my mum when she was alive or Fiona now, they would always say to me, you know, why can't you just be happy? And I do have periods where I feel okay happy but but certainly I don't think there's any achievement that has ever given me a, a real sense of fulfillment I, I actually resent the fact that the why the what, what is that I don't know you, like, I don't know what it's because really well, I've done know. it so it's not good enough kind of thing or? no I think it's because okay right now what I think it's that I think so like with the elections and funny enough Tony who's a much more kind of optimistic person than I am in a way uh, he felt the same in 97 definitely I can really? remember the two right. of us just saying oh god how long is this going to go on all this euphoria and all these people cheering and being happy and I was miserable what I was really quite miserable yeah I don't understand it and the anti-climax yeah but it shouldn't have even been like an anti-climax because no I think with that it was more you know it's the middle of the night we're exhausted mm. we haven't slept for three days and I'm starting a really big job in a minute. Yeah. I've got to go in there and sort out this government communications machine, which is not very strong. And, and Tony's now the prime minister. And it's, you know, it's like, I think it was, I think it was the moment of realisation of the relentlessness of what was to come. And in a way, it just got me down a bit. But I, re I do. And then I remember 2001 thinking, well, maybe I'll enjoy this one. Right, and it was exactly the same. The only moment I can remember of the 2001, the night of the election, feeling really good, was we arrived at uh, Millbank at about five in the morning, where it was, and I can remember seeing my son and Georgia Gould, Philip's daughter, mm. on the line. And, and that is the and I went over. That's the only thing I can remember thinking I really enjoyed that. The rest of it, it was the same. It was like. Everybody wants a piece of you. Uh, there's so much to organise. It's like... And then the third one, 2005, you know, it's ridiculous when you think about it. If we'd have got that sort of majority in 97, we'd have been really happy. But because we'd had these massive majorities yeah. And, yeah. and then there was, there was a bit of a you know, fall, 
It was like, oh, well, that didn't go quite as well as we wanted. But all, all those years in the job, what sticks out is your resilience. Where does the resilience come from? Is it? I mean, you've, you've said before that you have a huge ego, you don't, you don't tolerate falls. Um, but where does that sense of resilience come from? Because actually, it could be argued, George Bush, very controversial figure, so on and so forth. He, the guy's pretty resilient. Mm. I mean, if he, he, they do come at him with all angles. They did come at him at all angles. I mean... Where did, I don't did, know. I don't know. Well, was, there, was there were there things from George Bush, for example, that you that were different to Bill Clinton in terms of being a president leading a country that, that you thought, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, I know you had a chat about is a recovering alcoholic. You're a teetotaler now. Um, you know, no, I, I do fall off the wagon every now and then. I don't think he does at all. No, I think Bush. I think George Bush is. Uh, I wouldn't put him in the Clinton league as a certainly not as a communicator. Um, <laughs> By his own admission. Yeah. But I tell you what, I don't know, resilience for him. I mean, you know, he was the son of a president. Right. You know, he'd had a pretty gilded life. <laughs> Fair enough, that's uh, true. You know, he'd owned a baseball, was it baseball? Yeah. Or football, I can't remember. Um, but he was, uh, no, I think he did have a resilience. He had a, he had a, he actually, he once said that famously, you know, he got to, uh, I, I got to where I am by people misunderestimating me. <laughs> I think he had a, I mean, Clinton, it's, it's interesting how many of these people in the book, Clinton's another one, you know, uh, people, people who've lost parents and troubled childhoods and all that. I think that does, but I didn't have a particularly troubled childhood. Uh, no, I think my resilience came from my breakdown, I do. I think that's the single biggest thing that, that gave me that sense of, of toughness and an ability to withstand criticism and pressure it's funny, again, I mean, Fiona says that I'm useless at accepting criticism, but I said, well, you know, I've, I've kind of had quite a lot. I've, yeah. I've got through it. Um, I think I'm pretty good at taking criticism. And I, and I, think I'm, I think I've become stronger and stronger at separating out things that people say that matter and things that people say that don't. Mm. Um, Is that an that, age thing or an experience thing? No, or? I think it's an experience thing. And I think, I think I've always probably had it the basis of it but it's funny when i'm with people now leaders in whether it's politics or business or sport then at some point the conversation always comes down to them saying oh god the press got on my nerves oh god the media are a nightmare and i ended up i said to them just ignore it ignore it there's a wonderful quote from clinton in the book where he says you have to give someone permission to destroy your confidence that's amazing. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think you have to... The fact that somebody says you're ABC doesn't make you ABC. Mm. It's only if you are that it's a real problem. I mean, I've been compared to Hitler, Goebbels, Rasputin, and... I mean, you, how, do, how do you take that? You just, you end up laughing at it. I mean, you know, it's, where do they go next? Is it because you, you know, you, you've got a huge journalistic pedigree behind you and you know how the machine works? So you're like, Ugh, it's just someone firing it off. No, I think if it's true, you've got a problem. I mean, I wasn't... Um, I don't know, it's, I didn't feel I was a terrible person doing terrible things. I just never felt it myself. Um, I, I could... You know, I was trying to help the Labour Party win power and then I was trying to help Tony Blair be a good Prime Minister. That's, all, that's how I saw my job all the time. But is there a sense that the tallest trees catch the most wind? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's an element. I, I do think... I'm funny, I was in America recently... And uh, the book came out there a few months after here. And um, I, I found myself saying in, on one of the interviews that 
it was really interesting doing the interviews there compared to here, that there's a real celebration of mm. winners in America yeah. in a way oh. that here, I think we yeah. like to bring people down. It's crazy. Um, and I think that is a kind of, there's something in our psyche. That being said, I think people like it when you get through that. And that quote you just said, it's recently, um, what was I doing? I was doing something. Uh, I can't remember what it was now, but I was under the cosh for something or other. And Joey Barton, that day, he and I were both trending on Twitter. Him because he was meant to be going to West Ham and there was an outcry amongst the fans. And it, I'm glad to say he's now come to Burnley, my team, <laughs> and he's been brilliant. And I was for something else, I can't remember what. And so I sent Joey a message. I said, oh, look at that. We're both trending on Twitter for bad reasons. <laughs> Happy days. And he sent me that quote straight back. Really? The tallest trees. Yeah, well, um, I believe in it. You know, you, you mentioned the book Floyd Mayweather. I find Floyd Mayweather uh, amazing. Um, the sense of self-belief. You know, people hate Floyd Mayweather. Actually, his, his fighting style as a boxer isn't crowd-pleasing. No. But he, in the proof is in the pudding. He, he's an amazing fighter. But, you know... When I interviewed Floyd, I was fascinated by his strength of character. And going back to the Michael Jackson mm. kind of, you know, he lived in fear of his dad. Floyd mm. obviously lived in fear of his dad. And you mentioned the altercations with his dad in, in your book. What did you take from Floyd Mayweather? Um, what I took from him above all was that he was the only one of all the people I interviewed who said he never, ever thinks about losing. Yeah, no, I don't know if that's, I don't know if I believe that. I can't believe if you're a world title fighter that you don't occasionally lie in bed and think, shit, what if I lose? But so but he says it never, ever enters his mind. Yeah, it's mad. There was, a, there was a, some wrestler, um, there was an interview of wrestling, he was saying that he went to see Floyd Mayweather for the Pacquiao fight, and he got to about half an hour before, and he said, Floyd, we're going to go and sit in our seats. He said, oh, stay, watch some TV. He said, before you got to fight. And he just said, look, I'm either ready or I'm not. It doesn't mm. matter at this point. So I don't understand how someone... Is, is, if, if you win so much, does it, do you think it changes your brain? I think what happens... I think the other thing about him... And this is, I, I say in the book that I think he decided... He's a cleverer people than people give him credit. Cleverer person oh, than people give him absolutely. credit. He's very bright. Absolutely. He decided early on, Muhammad Ali is probably for all time going to be seen as the greatest boxer ever and possibly the greatest sportsman mm. ever. Partly because he touches all parts of the American dream. Yeah, that's Same a very thing, good point. The politics, the change. Yeah. And Mayweather realised from the start he could not compete with that. And he gave himself this thing about money. Yeah. Part of the American dream is money. Yeah, that's a very good point. And he, he said from the word go, I'm going to be the richest athlete of all time. Yeah. And he set, he set out to be that. Yeah. And then, you know, the thing, in the, he even makes his way into the innovation section in the book because of the way that he, he innovated the way that boxing is promoted and sold. So these altercations with his dad, mm. some of them are on camera yeah. in the reality TV programs to promote the fight. They make you think, was that real? Was that staged? Looks pretty real, but who yeah. knows? But I think that thing about, and then, the, I mean, some of it, the stuff on, you can, get, you can see on YouTube, the videos of him sort of walking down the street just throwing money at people and throwing money at a cameraman. And it's obscene yeah. on one level, but it's a way of him saying, I set my objective, I've got my strategy, and I'm doing it. <laughs> and you're not going to take that away from me. And then and the whole thing about the watches, he's got a wall just covered in Rolex watches that he only ever wears once. Insane. <sighs> he buys his teenage daughter a Bentley for her birthday. She can't even drive the damn thing. You know, it's like, 
It's crazy stuff. But it's his way of saying, I set myself big goals and I've met them. Yeah, and he has met them. That's the, that's the thing. Yeah. He has met them. Yeah. You've mentioned before that you had other kind of um, acronyms. You Obviously, OST. Were there any others that you had in your pocket or on your desk? Was it that you had an OST on your desk? I think you mentioned I have it, and I've got it inside all my notebooks as well. In all of them? Yeah. Really? OST, yeah. It's really funny. I was in Norway recently doing a speech about the book, and, and I, I had a, a, a whiteboard, and I said, and the most important letters in the English language are O for objective, S for strategy, T for tactics. And they all started laughing because I didn't realise that Ost is cheese in Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, this is the most important word in the language, cheese. Um <laughs> What else have I got? G-G-O-O-B. Which is? Get good out of bad. Can you give me an example of that? My breakdown. Yeah, great example. Um, or get good out of bad. But well, you, need, you need some distance to go, oh, maybe I can take that and that. Well, but I think that there's, that there's one of my favourite quotes in the book. Again, not original. I got it from um, uh, the, the, the book, uh, what was it, The Goldmine Effect. Uh, no, no, what's it called? Is it The Goldmine Effect? The, the book about the goldmine. It's about it's a it's a Danish guy who wrote this book where he went to places where like you know why has Jamaica produced all these great sprinters why has Korea cornered the market in women golfers and he went to Kenya and ran with all the Kenyan guys and they're run by this guy Colm O'Connell who's an Irishman and his quote which I love is the winner is the loser who evaluates defeat properly the winner the winner is mm. the loser who evaluates defeat properly so it's what do you learn from defeat. So, you know, David Beckham, global legend, icon now, 1998 World Cup, mm. sent off, national villain. Yeah. What did he learn from that? What did he take from it? Answer, he rebuilt through what he's good at, being a nice guy and being good at football. Um, you know, so every game that a coach loses, what's the first thing they do? They go learn, right, what did we do wrong? What could we do better? And too many people... They, they actually go away and they think, oh, well, you know, it, yeah, we weren't that bad. Uh, and, and I always say in data, I mean, there's a big section in the book on data, as you know, and the way that in politics and business in particular, people use data for confirmation bias rather than to mm. challenge themselves. Yeah, confirmation bias being? Being, you know, um, give you, well, there was an example on the radio the other day. These figures on the health service came out. Health minister goes out and says it shows that we're doing the right thing. Labour Party goes out and says it shows that they're doing the wrong thing. They're using the same data. Mm. Uh, they're using it to say what they want to say rather than we've got a problem here, we've got to address it. And so I think that that sense of... So what else have uh, TLTP? What's that? Best team leaders are the best team players. Best team leaders are the best... Right. And how does that work? I think teamship is about... I think teamship and leadership are completely linked. Um, I mean, I don't know what's going wrong at Chelsea at the moment, but I don't know. Uh, this, this seems to me there's a, there's a problem of leadership and teamship not not fusing. There was an interesting point on match today where someone was saying, "Look, you know, Mourinho was great at winning. I don't think he's a great loser. Mm. Um, do you think he's taking any any uh, positives out of the negatives?" I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I've I've met him a few times, but I don't know him well enough to know that. But I certainly think this is this period of his career is going to be the one that decides. I mean, look, he's, he's all, he's, his record is so good mm. uh, that it's always going to be, he's going to be up there. But this rec this period and how he gets through it will decide whether he is one of the all-time greats. Uh, if he gets through it and either turns things around at Chelsea or gets the boot at Chelsea and goes on to win the Champions League with Paris Saint-Germain, 
which is my bet. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Have you heard anything from Alex Ferguson? Uh, I know uh, you have a relationship with him of some sort. Yeah, I've known him for a long time, and he's 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 very political and so forth. I think he's, I think he's got um, look. His record speaks for itself. Mm. Um, the only thing is that you know I, I saw Arrigo Sacchi recently, the Italian manager, and I think there's you know maybe some of the Europeans think that oh, well, he, he quotes only ever did it in Scotland and England, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know his record is extraordinary. I think his ability is the ability to make difficult decisions, build a new team. That's difficult to do mm. it, and then to move out people that you've developed. That's difficult. So, so finally, what, what kind of lessons do you do you feel now? The books you've written it, you've processed it. What kind of lessons have you taken from the book? Are there? Did it reinforce your your view of OST, or have you learned new things looking back? And oh, maybe. No, I learned a lot from from some of these other people. Um, OST, definitely, I still believe that very, very strongly. And I think, actually, Mourinho was the exception, I think, in, in seeing that through a different lens. Um, I'll tell you what I, th I, I took away from it was just how... I mean, some of the people I've mentioned to you, for example, that thing about Wazim Akram, I think about that a lot. What does that actually mean in terms of what you're doing in a day-to-day, -day as you go about your life, the difference between wanting to win and will to win? Yeah. What does that mean? How do you apply that? Some of the things I learned from some of the sports people and some of the business people, I tried to take back into the Labour Party when we did the last campaign mm. um, and <laughs> failed. Um, but that took some positives out of it. Well, certainly I, I do. Um, Branson, for example, the, the, the thing that, and, the, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not operating in the same way as I used to. I'm doing different things now. But, you know, a lot of the stuff I do is actually just about talking to other people and, you know, I'm doing a thing at university next week, as I said. And so actually going to them, I'm going to talk to some of the business students, okay? Something Branson said, which I try to pass on to these students who are going out and trying to make their name in business. He said, and I believe him, he said he never went into a business venture thinking this is the one that's going to make me rich. Really? He went into a business venture thinking, this is interesting. There's a gap there. I think I can fill that. And often responding to personal frustrations that he felt. So, for example, he loves music. He loved buying records. Why is it so boring when mm. you go into a record store? Answer, let's make an interesting record store. Yeah. Virgin store, Virgin record stores. Why is flying so shit? Let's mm. make it buzzy and exciting. Virgin Air. Uh, American Airlines have got a terrible reputation. Virgin Atlantic. You know, it's like... And, 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 and every step of the way, being told by other people, you don't know anything about the flying industry. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'll give it a go. Yeah. Um, and then, but also, the other thing Branson said, GGOOB, he said one of his biggest disasters was Virgin Cola. Mm. He thought he could take on the world, take on Coca-Cola. He actually, I don't know if you remember this, he actually arrived in New York on a tank with a massive can of virgin cola on the tank. He's got balls. He's got balls. And <laughs> Coca-Cola ignored it for a while, but mm. eventually started to do well. And then Coca-Cola turned all their guns on him and they destroyed it. And he said that the big mistake was they weren't actually offering anything different. Mm. It was Virgin Airlines that's something a bit different. 
Well, Miss Campbell, your, your book your book is different. It was fantastic speaking to you. Your, your book was brilliant. I'd recommend it to all my listeners. Uh, Miss Campbell, thank you so Go much. Go buy now. Winners and how they succeed. <laughs> Seriously, Go to buy. your local shop. It's fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for our forthcoming episode with Sir Ranulph Fiennes, the world's greatest living explorer. This show has been produced by Joseph Wilson for Social Hand Grenade Productions. Check out his comedy show, The Social Hand Grenade Podcast, also available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Podbean.